0: Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard.
1: Austin, good to be back, man. How are you doing? it's another beautiful day
2: and you know what i'm really excited about today is you know first off one of our sponsors which it's been it's overdue that we have not had them on yet but uh, i love this organization i love what their messaging is the services they provide uh and what they do for the community in northern colorado so i i'm super excited i know you've met them too before and you know what are your thoughts brad
1: I am so grateful for just the willingness to sponsor our podcast. There's such great sponsors and advocates for the totality of mental health in this first responder community. Uh, we've had a chance to to visit uh, prior to this and get to know them a little bit. I just think they're amazing uh, humans and, and without spending any more time on us talking about them how about we just introduce them and bring them on ed and joanne rupert welcome to the uh, no one fights alone podcast ed and joanne ed and joanne uh i would i won't take anything away from introing you by wow. listing your bio how about we just start off with telling each of you telling us a little bit about who you are and and uh, what's what got you started? What tell us a little bit about your passion.
3: So thank you guys for having us on today. Um, this is exciting. Long time. I started many years ago as a volunteer firefighter and EMT, and slowly realized through working in different agencies in multiple different capacities that uh, peer support. And getting mental health services at all to anyone outside of law enforcement at that time in the nineteen uh, late nineteen nineties, early two thousand, law enforcement was really the only group that had a, a psychologist embedded in an agency. So over time, realizing that other agencies needed the, the you know needed mental health counseling because of my background and because I worked at. Uh, volunteer agencies as a volunteer firefighter on an ambulance um, with the sheriff's office as a victim advocate, advocate coordinator as a counselor in the jail and then as a, a mental health consultant on the SWAT team basically organically evolved into me being asked to be a clinical supervisor for a peer support team for the fire service. And that's pretty much where things really started to pick up for for us and for me uh, from taking on two agencies initially and being the directing clinical supervisor and teaching peer support, it grew very quickly to now uh, basically 12 years later where we have 26 agencies of, of all badges, all uniforms, all scrubs altogether. So The the history of both of us having a first response background, and Ed is going to talk about his in a moment, has really helped us uh, kind of create this very robust and authentic program for first responders that we care so deeply about.
2: And and that's what I love. I love that little tagline there. We talked about it before. I've heard it many times. That I love the all badges, all uniforms, all scrubs. It's a special message that says you know, hey, we're we're here to serve everyone in this community, and and we realize that people need the help. Ed, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you've got a vast amount of experience as well.
4: <laughs> yeah, I'll be brief. I've, I've been in law enforcement since I was 17 years old in Chicago and then uh, went into the military. I, I was a cadet police officer just outside of Chicago and then um, went in the military and, and hooked up to a security police squadron and, and did law enforcement security police squadrons and for 13 years concurrently, Got in law enforcement out here in Colorado for a sheriff's department and worked as a patrol officer, a canine officer, undercover narcotics operative, and division commander for juvenile sex crime investigations, and was and then folded over into arson investigations. And then during that time, started a, a dive rescue team and essentially left law enforcement to go to dive rescue international and start that under water recovery, water rescue. In fact, anytime you see a boogie board in the river, I'm the one that actually wrote the book on how to use those with Protech helmets and float right vests. And uh, I remember the day I called Maury Boogie and said, "Hey, we want some boogie boards shipped to Fort Collins, Colorado." <laughs> and he burst out laughing. He said, "I want some film on that." But so from there, uh, I handle I was shot at at the sheriff's office 127 times in a day. Um, and then handled the big Thompson flood for a couple months of 166 victims of that flood and uh, body recovery. And then after Dive Rescue, I became a fire chief for 23 years with uh, a department locally and, uh, and developed a program with not only fire, uh, fire but I handled public safety in general law enforcement fire EMS. So I had clinic, ambulance, and so it was kind of a whole gambit. After uh, which I went back to school to be a therapist because I realized the damage that I'd done to myself and I equated it because I've heard it along the trail of my life with first response of no one trusting people to help them and I want to make sure that we could provide some useful resources and so we've culminated our combined experience of about 80 years, Joanne and I, and decided that we were going to be all badges, all uniforms, all scrubs, and train them and work with them all together using a a culturally competent, not just culturally aware therapists who understand that you don't have to explain yourself when you come to us. We understand because there, as Joanne always tells people, there's nothing that would surprise Ed and nothing he can't handle. So you don't have to worry about what you're telling him because he's been down that road. So, and here we are.
2: Love it, and I think that's a huge part of why the organization that you guys have is something special. Is that you both understand the the plight when it comes mm-hmm. to the the mental health of our first responders. I want to jump in, and and I know that it's evolved over the years, but. Given us an idea of you know kind of what FRTC is, the services that they provide, you know what what you guys do with your your member agencies on a day to day basis.
3: So, if we start at the beginning, I think the most important thing is that we provide counseling by culturally competent clinicians, twenty four seven hours of the day, seven days of the week, three hundred and sixty five days of the year. There is no time that somebody could would call and not get myself um, and now Jara or Ed on the phone. I've gone to the office at two o'clock in the morning. I've talked to people on the phone throughout the night. So has Ed. Um, and so that kind of, that's where I think a huge foundational piece is, is just having, being available because when a first responder actually decides to eventually reach out for help, make that call That phone is a 10,000 pound weight. And if somebody on the other end of the phone says, you know what, I'll, I'll hook you up with a crisis counselor. It may take a couple of hours. I will get back to you. Or why don't you call back on Monday when somebody's in the office or head to the emergency room and somebody can see you there you've lost that individual that that, that moment is gone so
4: and not just figuratively but might seriously, be a um, I've lost them.
3: another so so having that as a foundation piece but also concurrently having multiple people within the agencies trained in a 40-hour peer support academy which is post approved um it follows all the IAFF and um CPF uh model and and constructs, if you will. And it trains all the uniforms in all the badges, all the scrubs in one setting to to then create this much larger system whereby we have communication across the agencies to each other when there's been a critical incident. And I'd like mm-hmm. to go on by saying, you know, when you go on a scene, how many different groups are there? Is it just the fire service? I mean, Brad, you've been in this a long time it's not just the fire service that shows up or law enforcement. It's multiple units. And then it doesn't stop there. We, we can't forget that the reason they're there is because of the 911 operators. If we didn't start with them, nothing would happen at all. And then we, we move through the, the the badges and we get to potentially the coroners. No one recognizes them as being an integral part in the, the, not only that initial contact but the the investigation that ensues after that and then what happens when they get to the hospital we have ed nurses that are on standby waiting to take this critical patient plus uh, maybe a couple maybe three or four at the tops ed doctors that are basically at going to be going to be receiving Everybody in the system that is having a crisis, whether it's mental health or critical patient, the ED doctors are the bottom of the funnel, as Ed and I call it. They're the ones that are going to get the brunt. And what about the crisis assessment group? What about the co-responders? This is a system that doesn't work in a vacuum. We work together as a much broader team. And so we need to train together as a a very connected, authentic community, but that has this umbrella of confidentiality. And so I'd say this evolved by, you know, training a couple of departments in peer support by the agencies asking if we would be the clini- if I would be the clinical supervisor agreeing to that, and then realizing when we got to about eight agencies, wait a minute, we're doing a lot of individual trainings here, but we're seeing a lot of people from the same uh, from different groups be on scene how are we not bringing them all together and there came a moment where ed and i looked at each other and said oh yeah this needs to be a much bigger program and a system where we all work together and recognize that we all share a trauma from a different angle and so that's how this program evolved
1: you know i think it's interesting uh joanne when you're when you're talking there you bring up <clears throat> some great points of uh you know nobody wants to be a part of this uh Homogeneous trauma group, but oftentimes they are uh, they are brought into this. Just I and where I'm going with this, as you're sitting there talking, I'm I'm remembering back to a prosecutor who wanted me to visit with um, some of his staff who was having to make picture copies, photocopies uh, on disclosure for volumes of child sex assault pictures that administrative assistant never asked for that job. That administrative assistant was a, a mother of three trying to, trying to make a living in, and, and here we are, we drug her into this, this field of trauma. Just it's, it. it, it as you're sitting there talking, it just, it, there's no, almost no end to the connection to some of these traumatic events, the ripple effects as it goes outward. But I want to circle back to something that, that I want to, I want you to define. Uh, I would love to hear you or Ed define the cultural competent piece. Austin and I talk a lot of, to a lot of people about cultural competence, and it seems to be uh, oftentimes, um, mislabeled or oftentimes even dumbed down. But how important is the cultural competency piece? Is it for you all? I'd like to hear your opinion on kind of what that means to you all and how uh, how how important it is to you.
3: You go ahead, Ed.
4: Well, quite honestly, the the way we look at it is a lot of people say, you know, they go to a, uh, a one-day ride-along and they have lunch with the firefighters or the cops, and then they do a ride-along and push the siren button a couple of times, and they turn on the lights and listen to the radio and maybe go on a couple calls, and they say, oh, I'm good to go. The fact of the matter is, is that this, we believe that many of our staff, a, a lot of folks that we, we deal with, for example, one today just said... I, I I could tell that person from a thousand percent surety. I know how you feel because I felt that same way. And here's what I found out: you'll felt found. And it, a clinician. We've had multiple clinicians, and Joanne can tell you, that our uh, first responders and frontline workers who have gone to those clinicians who are culturally competent. Sorry for the figure quotes. But culturally competent and then they're traumatized by the very you know be careful what you ask for because you may just get it um i mean when a first responder or frontline worker dumps their load i mean you can't unsee that in your mind and the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between imagined and reality so if you think about it you know this bread, you, you think about it you go up past the ne- an intersection where it was a serious accident, you're in your subconscious mind, you're right back there. And it may cause some sleep disturbances that night because you say, oh man, that was horrific. And so we have to be on our game. We, we provide high speed, high efficacy care expediently and immediately. And uh, we operate like a 911 agency. And we, as as you said, we handle everyone from the, when the call drops, all the way through every unit is dispatched, including the DA and criminal justice alternatives until there's adjudication, post adjudication, we have all those folks. So it all starts with a dispatcher calling someone saying, I need, uh, someone needs help. And then everybody along that chain is in our system right now. We have DAs in our system. We have criminal justice alternative. We have coroner's office. We have uh, we're working right now on trauma surgeons. I mean, when, when the hospital spins up, nobody realizes there's about 100 people standing there with gloves on and gowns on and masks on, waiting for that person to walk in the door. I mean, we have a, maybe have an engine company of four and an ambulance crew of two, and they hit the door, and there's 100 people shouting orders to each other. And, and all of them, are, are it's like a finely tuned orchestra, and they do their work. And they bring in trauma surgeons, neurosurgeons they bring the pop to the people there. they are now first responders and frontline workers and so we believe that everybody we train together we learn together we succeed together all badges all uniforms all scrubs all together and so we feel as though if somebody trains with with them and we we actually have our clinicians help with the same thing is is we look for them who have a trauma background who have worked in the hospital setting because a lot of our 70% of all 78% of all fire calls are EMS. I mean, a hundred percent of them are potentials for EMS. Um, and so you know, when you're you've got fire stations, you know, rolling out, you've you've got EMS that's that's the critical piece to the conveyance to the hospital to spin up that whole hospital system and that back end of things. And so it's it's critically important that our counselors don't squimish or grimace. When somebody says the baby didn't make it, they can't fall apart. They've got to say, I know how you feel. I felt the same way. Here's what they found out. Well, we've been doing this a long time. And so uh, that's what culturally competent means to us. Everything else is just aware. You blew a siren, flip the lights on. Wow, it's exciting. I got my heart rate up. And uh, But when it comes right down to hearing what you really don't want to hear, I mean, right now, as you talk about it, DA's office is reviewing all body cam footage. So now they're not walking, looking at pictures; they're looking at live time feed of somebody being killed or shooting at the officer, and they're hearing the emotion attached to that, which creates vicarious uh, trauma.
1: Absolutely, uh, some of the most impactful, uh, uh, horrifying stories come from people who have watched the video that weren't at the scene, but they've had to after uh, clean up after in some form or fashion. Uh, contextually the internal affairs investigators or, you know, some of these folks that are just absolutely traumatized deeply and wounded deeply from, from just watching Mm -hmm. this unfold. Records clear. Absolutely. Awesome. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, first trauma, first responder trauma counselors. What, what are those uh, what are the things that you uh, bring to the table and say to people, here is what uh, first responder trauma counselors uh, serves in this community. what, what, what are those things? Well, and
2: I want to add to that question, Brad, too, is,
1: is we work, and you have as
2: well, Brad, in the nonprofit space for a long time. You've worked with a lot of organizations uh, across the country. Everyone kind of has their own little special way of doing things, how they operate. Mm-hmm. You know, some services they have, some services they don't have. In this question, guys, I also wanted to to chat about some of the services that I know you guys offer that are, are, are not necessarily done by your therapist, but, you know, services that you've partnered with that people can go to and, you know, um, and, and I'll let you speak on that. But I think that that's a really special part that a lot of people don't do as well.
4: Sure.
3: So many of our services beyond the 24/7 365 counseling and overseeing you know 135 mm-hmm. peer supporters are proprietary for our group um for our member agencies ed I, i'm going to give him the kudos on this but has spent a lot of time cultivating relationships and partnerships within the community to give our first responders a opportunity to find some alternative treatments, either free or highly discounted. That being said, the actual counseling part, all of our therapists are trained in EMDR, eye movement desensitization, reprocessing. A few of us are trained in brain spotting. I'm trained in accelerated resolution therapy. We have acoustic, uh, vibroacoustic resonance therapy, which is uh, sound therapy. We have hypnotherapy we have acu-detox therapy. Uh, So we try to have a different kind of uh, therapy that will suit a specific need of a first responder. And then in addition to that, we have these partnerships with community members that specialize in other forms of therapy, such as ketamine-assisted therapy, for instance, or um, a Basically there's another a, a group that we work with that does has a data chamber which allows for brain remapping, if you will. All of those are part of what we offer to those agencies that we're contracted with. They have access to that information um through private pages that we we have and they have to have their, you know, work login. I'm not sure if that's too much information that you're asking for. But with that, it just allows for more than the regular talk therapy, which honestly, with this population, it's not something that a therapist should do on a regular basis. You,
4: you can't bore these people into success. You can't talk and say, you know, you, you tell a cop or any first responder say, you know, I think we can get this fixed for you in about a year, intense counseling for a year and they're going to say i'm tapping out i'm not doing that. i'm not doing that it's i mean i've got to be fixed now you know my marriage is falling we, you know we've got almost up to 8 not just us but a nationwide 80% divorce rate we've got also 65% of all ems workers worldwide are assaulted every year 95% by their patients and 5% by the patients families and that's translating to the ed doctors are being assaulted nurses are being assaulted I asked uh, one of the ED docs I said what's the percentage of people who are have behavioral health issues when they come in I said what about 80% he said hundred percent he said the longer they wait 150 percent he said "They're people have very short fuses now and and uh, you know doing more with less and so we we've really got to step up our game to, because it's it's easier to keep the first responders and frontline workers than it is to find new ones and so you know any any employer who has these population groups really need to pay attention to making sure they have not just EAP, because EAP penetration rates 2 to 6% on a good day, and we have 75 to 80% penetration rate in all of our groups because we get it. We go to them. I mean, I was just at a, a fire department today stopping in and saying, hey, what's up? Because what we're doing is we're normalizing the fact that it's just them. It's no big deal. I can t- I see them anytime. It's like talking to friends as opposed to, uh, you know, I'm going to be psyched. I mean, we, we offer, you know, many departments have their department psychologist or clinician. And it's, I, I call it the Henry Ford model of counseling. You can have any color car you want, as long as it's black. I mean, we have 23 clinicians of all flavors, sizes, shapes, and colors. And we want to make sure that everybody, you know, I used to work at Disney and it's a, you know, it's, there's a Mickey for every mini. We've got to make sure there's a clinician that anyone in our system feels safe and comfortable with and their spouses. And so we, we take great pride in understanding that we've got to be on our game because these people are really always on their game and they're working this treadmill of trauma and we've got to mitigate it because even though we take care of you know, the traditional idea of therapy as well, they've got all this accumulation of, of problems and some are pre-work there. I mean, when a department hires this new recruit and says, oh my gosh, we got a new person here, it's going to be great. They're a clean slate. Uh, Not so much. They have familial issues. They have all kinds of things that have gone on pre-employment here. And now you take that and compound it on this treadmill of trauma and the outcome. I mean, you know, the best expectation is that they can maintain some way, but we've got a, a clinical group has to be on their game for this. And so we take this really seriously. We're mission over money. We want to make sure that our population group gets care because If you look at it from a holistic standpoint, it's as much about the citizens they all serve. I mean, I was talking to a psychologist uh, uh, about two years ago, and he said, how do you see your practice, Ed? And I said, well, I said, you see all these people in this restaurant and on the road and parked in the parking lot. I said, we're responsible for all those people. He said, well, you're really dramatic. And then a gentleman walked in and he was having an allergic reaction to a medication. And so we stepped up called our crews in, uh, you know, called code, code 2, as you know, and just said, uh, hey, if you could just roll in, we've got a sick man, we take care of him. Gave him the patient handoff. And the and the ambulance or fire crew steps off and says, hey, Ed, how are you doing? And then the police showed up, hey, Ed, how you doing? And then the ambulance showed up, hey, Ed, what are you, how are you doing? What you got? And we tell them, so we become part of the team. And so this is about making sure that public gets 100% focus of care because we do our jobs well. If we do it poorly, they may not get us good care. And we, we think that that's uh, something that's demonstrable in the it's, future.
2: It's something special too that I want to talk on is the fact that from what, I, what I'm hearing from both of you, which is something that I deeply, deeply believe in, is that there is not a cookie cutter method. <laughs> For every single first responder that you treat, you are taking in. You are looking at the individual, at and then exposing them to a lot of different avenues, so that you can make sure they find something that is going to work for whatever they're experiencing. I mean, Joanne, tell me if I'm wrong. There,
3: no, you're absolutely well. You're not wrong. We are. We care so very much that we have created what we call the ARMA program, and Ed can define that in a moment. But we will go to our first responders' homes and. We will help them in their home for whatever is coming up for them um, at that moment. Uh, We will get them the next resources that they need at that moment when they're in crisis. We're not talking about a medical emergency. We're not talking about, you know, uh, we've got to get this person to the hospital. That's not what we're saying. What we're talking about is going above and beyond the in-office counseling or telehealth counseling or even peer support to, to realize that this one individual is in a critical mental health crisis and going to the ED is not the option. And so we, through Organically, have created the ARMA program where we will respond. Uh, we have a nurse with us. There's always a clinician. Sometimes we have a negotiator with us and we will mitigate the issue at their home get them the help they need. And in all cases with the family present and in all the cases that we've done that, those individuals are still working today. They got the help that they needed and they are doing great. So they're thriving. So we know that we're doing something right there, unfortunately, or whatever we're, you know, it's not something that's in the purview of of a typical clinician. So not a lot of people will do that.
4: As I said, we operate like a 911 system.
2: Yeah. Go into the ARMOR response a little bit more, Ed, and, and how that came about.
4: Yeah. Okay. ARMOR stands for All Responder Mobile Operational Response. We have three response vehicles. We have a van and and a suburban and an explorer, and we're fitted with lights and siren and license for it. And and uh, should somebody be in crisis, I mean, and we it's based on the acuity that they have. But you know, when somebody makes a bad decision and a choice in terms of alcohol or whatever they might be taking and you know they're making rash statements, we've found that nobody's really suicidal as far as what we've been concerned when they're sober as opposed to when they're inebriated. So we always have a nurse with us. We hydrate, we put a at one point we put a thousand dollars worth of medicine and, and IVs in someone's arm because they were a big person. To get them stabilized enough so that we can make some decisions and choices for them, and get them to the point where they're sober enough to make some great choices. And usually, uh, and w- we've had one person that you know we we saw them, and you know within uh, uh, two and a half hours they were on the road for an inpatient treatment center. So we do a quick intervention, and we move them through the system pretty quickly. And you know, and but the beauty is is they trust us. If if we were just tri- traditional off the street clinicians, they'd say no, but we create relationships, long-term relationships with these people so that we've broken the stigma of behavioral health care. It's just visiting with Ed and Joanne and their team. It's no big deal. And so um, those folks, we we go the extra mile to make sure they understand that we've got their back 100%. And,
2: and I've met some of the, the people personally that have experienced uh, the Armour program and every single one mm-hmm. has always said, man, you know, these people saved my life, right? Like that's, that's the idea behind what you guys are doing. What you're doing is is saving people's lives that are in crisis. Uh, I want to jump to something next uh, mm. and go a little bit more in depth because I think it's a special program. But first, uh, Brad, I'm going to ask you a very broad question here, and I want your take as somebody who's worked in the peer support field for a long time when you think of training for peer support what are your thoughts on it is it going to be boring dry just you know sitting there for hours and hours hoping that it ends
1: um that's a loaded question but i i would have to say the large majority of that peer support training is pretty boring. Uh, it's, it's pretty dry because there are some necessary, uh, check the box things that are required to be pumped into that person's brain. Uh, hopefully, you know, to never use it, but you, you put all that information Mm -hmm. in there, uh, as a, just in case. But, uh, you know, I, I think back in a lot of my trainings were, man, uh, some of that ICISF stuff was rough, you know, and, um, a specific suicide, I won't say what it was, but a specific suicide intervention course, man, like take me now, Lord. I mean, it was, it was rough. Um, but you know, when you get to the course, you know, first responders are action based. So, you know, get, get me in it, get me practicing it, get me, get me doing something. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure where you're going with that, but that's a, uh, that's that's my take. Well, where where I'm going
2: with it is, uh, FRTC has their National Peer Support Academy. Uh, I've had the pleasure of attending. Ben also Ben Pearson, the clinic, our clinical director, has been on the podcast a couple times. Had the pleasure of attending uh, 40 hours of Joanne in front of a class teaching. You know the the ins and outs of peer support. Joanne, can you speak on kind of the peer support? You don't have to go into like major depth, you know what you do hour by hour, but you know, give us an idea because I, I think this is a great addition that also an organization like yourself, they, they don't work in tandem with these things, right? Like they, they will offer, you know, clinical services where they do individual therapy, but they actually won't offer training for the entire peer support team from multiple different counties, multiple different agencies. And I think that's something really special that you guys do. So
3: let me see if I'm answering your question, but I want to ask you, Austin, how did you find the training loaded? Remember, I'm on here with you.
2: So I have sat through hundreds of hours of training uh, for, you know, everything and anything under the sun working in this field. Uh, I actually found yours now. Granted, I feel like I knew a lot of the information um, just because I've been a part of it for so long in the mental health aspect but the presentation itself the the way that you worked through I want to say I'm going to call it phases, you know, interactions, beginning of interactions, peer support level, you know, different levels that, that they're talking. I found it very, very interesting. And what I was actually doing was I was looking into the rest of the 27 people that were in that class and looking at their body language, their eyes, their shoulders, all of these type of things to see if they were paying attention and if they were involved in, in what you were teaching and, every single person in that room was intent on learning everything that you had to say, which I think is very rare. You always have the guys that are sitting in the back on their phones, usually who kind of just don't pay attention. And, and that wasn't the case. So shorter answer is I really enjoyed it. Actually.
3: Great answer there, Austin. I'll pay you later for that. Um, So I, I find that interaction and being genuine is really important when you teach. We cover all obviously the important uh, subjects that we we need to, Mm -hmm. but we do obviously do experiential in that as well. And what I have found is that the agencies that have come uh, to our academy that are not in this area, we've had people fly in from all over Mm -hmm. the country, have asked um, have have found so much benefit in the combined teaching of all the badges, all uniforms, all scrubs, all together. The comments I've had are, I had no idea that, you know, in an officer involved shooting, the officer is treated as the, it's a homicide, it's a criminal, they're a criminal. I have so much more empathy now for law enforcement. The, the empathy piece to the emergency frontline workers and the doctors, and the 911 operators that have been, I think, in some part neglected as part of this field, and yet they're so critical because they are hearing the words and seeing it in their head and not getting any closure, and it's very vivid for them. So seeing that empathy and connection amongst all the badges, Mm -hmm. all the uniforms, all the scrubs, all together, has been pretty much a, a beautiful moment, a light bulb moment for many. And I think that's what has given us so much, has increased our, our contracts because people have come and said, we, want, how do "We how do we get some of this? Like, we want to be part of this because we're very isolated. We're alone in our area. We, we know we respond with other agencies, but we're not part of anything that they do. Mm-hmm. So teach us how to do it. And if it's been out of state, I've been asked to teach out of state, I've been asked to teach for the Air Force, because they see the benefit of um, the communication piece, and, and like I said, I can't stress it enough, the empathy piece, uh, understanding that you don't have to stay in your lane. When, when we first started, we were emphatically told, Joanne, Ed, you need to keep in your lane, fire works with fire, law enforcement works with law enforcement, don't include EMS. And we Ed and I looked at each other and said, how is that, how is that right? So we decided not to do that because we don't like to be told what to do. And we, <laughs> it is true. And so we, true. we went That's on true. our path. And for Ed and I, one of the things that we truly believe in, when a decision is right, it's very easy and you don't have to argue with, a, with the right decision. You can just feel the energy pull you towards the right decision. And so we knew that this was the right decision for us. And for our group up here, which is so, our first responders are flipping amazing. Um, our family members are first responders. We we so appreciate them. Um, we care, like I said, so much that we are easily able to invest our time. So much so that it's actually kind of depleted our budget, if you will, because it's too important to us.
4: Right. Yeah, so I, you know, on top of that, um, Joanne, uh has and she wouldn't tell you but she's written a definitive manual for the national peer support academy that she teaches all over the country in fact um we've got folks that call us i mean people will we always tell them they say well can you, we, you do an academy in in this location And we say, yes, but why don't you send a couple people to the next academy just to see if it's something you want? We don't want you to think that, you know, just buying a pig at the poke. So um, send a couple people, see what they think, and then we can go from there. And invariably, they'll come out and then they'll say, we got to have it. Can you teach us how to set up a system like you have in our community? Because we, so we, you know, we've been told as Joanne said, stay in your lane. And also, you know, people say, well, think outside the box. And I say, there's no box. Box is self-imposed between the gray matter between your two ears. Anything's a possibility if it's the right thing, and if it's the right thing, it'll be an easy thing. It won't be convenient, but it'll be easy, and it makes sense. And so, uh, you know, Joanne's been chided by other clinicians because we do the armor response, or we do this, or do that. And the fact of the matter is, is that we do it because it's the right thing to do for our community.
1: And you know, I can't tell you how how uh fulfilling that is to hear. Uh, you know, I've been. Long ago, I was helping put peer support teams together and training peer support teams, and uh, you're all all badges, all uniforms, all scrubs. Uh, we used to call it multidiscipline. I, I think in some categories they still, but I I absolutely loved teaching multi-discipline peer support teams for several reasons, uh, most of which you've you've talked about, Joanne and Ed, but. It was so great to get all those people in the same room and let them communicate about their struggles and see that they're actually not that different from each other. Oftentimes that they, they have this border or boundary, uh, that's created of, uh, up to and including hostility towards each other, brotherly, sisterly love. Uh, but the reality is they're all sharing a common bond, which is trying to get through this thing. And, uh, and two, I would echo your, your communications piece, the communicators, you know, I think there's a growing trend to accept that dispatch communications piece in the first I know there's states all across the country that have enacted legislation to accept them uh, in. And I think that I think that uh, needle is moving uh, greatly, but. I just want to thank you for being so passionate about putting these peer support teams together because I'm a I'm a huge advocate of the peer support community. Let's let's keep moving a little bit. Any any additional information you, that you'd like to offer in relationship to the to the trainings that you offer that maybe we haven't had a chance to circle around to or talk about. Don't forget to talk about the dogs too. One of oh. the best parts.
3: So one of the things that if you knew me you, and Ed, you'd know that we come with four four legged friends. Bunker is the oldest dog. He's actually a service dog, a medical service dog for me and a therapy dog. And then we have Badge and Stryker who are twins from the same litter um, named after law enforcement and the medical field. And then the last of the the group, the pack is Moose, who um, is just a, a sweet pain in my butt. But they come to all the trainings. We usually have one dog there every day, different one. And then on the last day, we, we have a huge uh, influx of four of them, which is pandemonium. But those dogs also are a central part of our program because they come to the departments. They come to trainings. They come to critical incident processings. They they will, if there's a need um for us to be somewhere, somebody, an agency will call and say, hey, is it possible you could drink, bring one or two of the dogs and we bring them and they are, they're, they're lovable, they're smart. And our first responders kind of know that for, with first responder trauma counselors, we have these four amazing animals that are specifically a uh, part of the program for them. They are not for the general public. They serve the first responders only. And that makes it pretty special for the first responders because they know that we didn't do, we didn't do any of the training for outside groups. It's for them specifically. And and so yes, Austin, you're absolutely right. In terms of that, is a huge part of our program, and that you know, it, we're, it's requested on a regular basis, if you will.
2: It's my favorite part, personally. <laughs> so, I just love the dogs and working with people. I mean, it's I, it's amazing to watch people open up, and you know, they they'll even break down with dogs right next to them. You know, it just it it helps people overcome a barrier. It feels yep. like.
3: Well, I went to a training just the other day and I bought uh, one of the dogs with me and he just, actually I bought two and he just kind of circled the room and he visited with everyone. And then he honed in on one individual and laid down at their feet and did not move. And they kind of looked around and they petted him and then they started really petting him and he would not leave them at all. And I thought that's really odd because usually he kind of does the the rounds And afterwards that individual came up to me and said that they had just experienced a death in their family and they were really mourning the loss and they couldn't believe that this dog would just literally stay with them for the entire training. And it wasn't a convenient place for Badge to lay. It was by no means convenient. But he, he managed to just find that individual, and it made a huge difference to them as they sat through the training. And I, I wouldn't have known unless they had come up and said something to me afterwards.
4: So they're barrier breakers, as well as emissaries to behavioral health yeah. care. Oh, yeah. And they're really yeah, It's only the, uh,
2: the massive amount of, of dog food you must buy <laughs> each month with four of them. <laughs> okay. Well,
4: quite honestly, quite honestly, uh, they do. A agencies. Saying, like, we, so they like, we're good don't with you not being there. Could the you puppies. just
3: get the dogs here? <laughs>
4: Yeah. Yeah, 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 but just send send a puppy, do you have an Uber, a puppy Uber? So yeah, and so they they are an important part. We also teach a, a class for, uh, it's not just the peer support class, but we teach a class for all the other folks called 911 Aware. It's called Always Watching, Always Ready Education. And we'll, it's essentially a peer support light that we don't charge the agencies for to make sure that everybody else knows what's up, that we want them to be aware of the triggers of, of crisis potential, and how to move move through the system to get peer support on it. So we've got other. So we, our goal is to have the peer supporters, and then everybody else love being that. aware.
2: And and I know that we're each other. we're getting close to the end, but I want to spend this last portion here talking about something near and dear to my heart, <laughs> specifically, uh, which is the nonprofit side of what you guys do. It is a newer organization. I I love what the the ultimate mission is. And, you know, what it stands for, I think that, you know, you, you get to see a group of people come together with a mission that is, is not about the money. And it's, it's, it is a literal nonprofit that is there to help first responders. So, so speak on that side a little bit. I know it's newer, but, uh, you know, I want our listeners to know what the design of this is and, and how it's designed to help, you know, their people.
4: Be my guest, my love. Can I answer that, Joanne? (laughs) Okay. Um. You know with with most practices you know they, they do their thing and and we we have worked really hard and not for us but we've worked hard with commitment and loyalty to the cause that we serve and um, and we're thinking okay what is the next phase of this we would wouldn't want all this work to go away with us and so we we determined that we probably should start a 501c3 nonprofit and effectively meld first responder trauma counselors into wait for it, first responder trauma services, 501c3. That's run by a board that can manage the budget and and not have anything uh, wane with us not being involved in it or be around. And so it's a succession planning and sustainability of the system and allows the system to build through grants. Uh, We're um, we self-funding you know, deductibles for inpatient treatment care, um, also ketamine assisted therapy and things along that line. But we wanna make sure the, the primary cause of it is to make sure that our efforts, not that they we're that great, but we've we had some success and we care so deeply that that deep concern and care and love for our first responders and frontline workers doesn't go. And so, first responder trauma services, the 5123frts911.com, would allow. Uh, that sustainability discussion. I'd like happen. to just
3: add a personal side to this. Um, how we came to be at this point, as well. We w- we would love to have a treatment center that is specifically for first responders. Experiential. Um, we know that uh, that's a, a a long dream away, but it's something that we really would really would like. Um, and if we take that far end of the spectrum to a first responder a treatment center, and we look at kind of where we were, mm. Ed hasn't been paid for 12 years. He's done this for free. Um, I've been paid minimally just because we have believed in this cause above and beyond um, monetary outcomes and values. And we realize that we this is not sustainable um, at the end of the day. We we definitely, um, if, if something happens, like Ed said, to the two of us, that people are not going to do this for free. Um, so we we would like to be able to have the nonprofit side grow and be able to basically uh, sustain, as Ed, I repeat, um, things above and beyond the counseling, um, alternative therapies, deduct deductibles, and potentially, exactly things that are outside of the relationship box or issues. cost a lot more to uh, cover. Um, than what we are covering covering right now. To be able to put money for a capital program towards having this experiential place would be fantastic. I mean, the VA has many places all around the country, but a first responder centric building is non-existent um, in in the way that we see that. And so we're working on those steps, but we just can't do it where we're at at the moment. We need to be looking bigger and broader through the nonprofit side of things. And so that's really another reason why FRTS was born.
4: Correct, and, and just a side note is we're hoping that the Chateau joins us in this platform. It would be the only, from what I found, the only first responder experience. I mean, you, you mentioned it before, Brad, you know, first responders are action figures. And we've got to make sure we can put the action in the action figure. And, uh, and so using um, um, nature resources to allow them to heal faster and longevity, and not just when they're inpatient, but also this, this center would be a drop-in center. So for tune-ups, for the family, you know, it's a high divorce rate in the first response field. I had somebody say, well, it's cheaper to buy a, a, a spouse a house and not marry them. You just have a mate and buy them a house, and that way I don't have to worry about a house being transferred later on. And you know it's, it's, a, it's a sad joke, but the fact is, is that it's the reality of it. So our goal is to keep families together, which keeps the behavioral health crisis down. We believe there's a behavioral health uh, issue with every medical issue and a medical issue with every behavioral, behavioral health issue. And so having that centric of those resources available to take care of these folks would be incredible. Also, one other thing, we're looking at a crisis uh, uh, intervention resource center at a drop-in center when a first responder doesn't know what to do and they can either go up in the mountains and get into shenanigans or not go home or they can go to the crisis mitigation center and have counselors there to meet them, uh, off shift after they've had a high IQ. That
1: is uh man. That is fantastic. I hear your passion, both of you. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable the passion and now combined with vision, uh, and you're undergirding that with a nonprofit. I've, I've worked in the nonprofit community, uh, a really long time. I worked really hard, uh, building my own for a while. I know, what that takes. So kudos to you because you're doing it. You're actually doing it. And I would advocate on your behalf right now that, that, uh, nonprofits don't exist without, uh, people with big hearts, uh, giving donations, either a penny, a dollar, a hundred dollars or a thousand. Uh, these, uh, smaller, large amounts always mean something. And this is such a great and worthy cause Uh, Ed and Joanne, you're doing noble work. Thank you so much. You're doing courageous things. You're clearly saving lives. And uh, for the nonprofit piece, I I just want to thank you so much for doing it.
4: If I could give a shout out, thank you so much. A a shout out to our website, 911overwatch.org is our clinical side. And FRTS911.com is our nonprofit site. And so uh, I, I really appreciate you both, Austin and Brad, allowing us to be here today and share this. Do those you know, websites that hour.
1: you just listed, do those have uh, areas where you can actually donate if a listener is, is so impassioned that they want to j- jump on there and donate? do they? How do they do that?
4: Correct. FRTS911.com and just there's a donate button right on the front page. And, uh, and then if you want some background information, you know, it's 911overwatch.org. And so they're companion sites. But we would really appreciate it um, to carry on this work. We, we, we want to get this program effectively in every state in the country right now and, and create a unified first responder but my worker group yeah. that
1: you're doing it, you're chocolate.
2: making it happen. It's a beautiful thing, man. And, and I can tell you from, from the bottom of my heart to anyone that's out there listening is, you know, this, this organization in particular, and I I don't think I've said this before on this is it holds a, a place near and dear in my heart because, I've seen personally a lot of the work that they are doing, not only on the front end, on the back end, uh, you know, everything that they're doing is above and beyond. And then to put together this nonprofit, the board members are all, uh, you know, former, former or current first responders that are are in it with the same idea that that Ed and Joanne have of of helping those. So. Check out their website if you can. You know, every donation is is appreciated. The money is going towards the mission. Yep. So, thank you, Ed and Joanne, again for coming on.
3: Thank you uh, both we- so much.
2: Well,
4: thank you.
1: Yeah. Great to have, have you. See you guys. go.
4: Bye-bye. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by.
2: Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031.
0: No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life. It will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.